Mark Crane is off for the weekend. We won't be doing Romans this morning. <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, I'm, my name is Gary Post, and I'm the care pastor here. I used to be the associate pastor, so I, I think I even said that last night, but I'm the care pastor. I spend a lot of time uh, counseling with people now. And um, we're going to be talking this morning about, about uh, two different realities, one that we can see and, and one that we can't. Before we do that, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for these folks who are pursuing after you. They could be many places this Sunday morning, but they're choosing to be here. And, and so I pray that uh, we know that nothing happens of any eternal significance without your Holy Spirit's intervention. And so we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would uh, be here in power this morning, actively opening our hearts and allowing me to convey uh, your word clearly, and we pray that you'd impress it on our hearts and further transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been, been my observation from time to time that, that uh, sometimes it's not what we know but what we don't know or what we think we know that gets us into trouble. Uh, so, sometimes uh, and a story to illustrate that uh, some, some of you may remember that my first career was as a, a state trooper. I was a state trooper for 26 years, retired back in 2000. And uh, one of my assignments was on the Detroit freeways. I worked the freeways in the late 70s. Yes, it's true that I'm that old. And uh, I, I was working the John Lodge Freeway one day. The Lodge, as you, you may know, is uh, the north-south freeway, US 10, that runs up, um, runs up out of Detroit to the north. Got called to an accident scene on the Lodge Freeway. And as I approached that accident scene, as I rolled up on that, I, I could see it. It looked like a snowstorm, kind of like a mini snowstorm over this, this one little car. And uh, as I got closer, I could see it. it was a Dodge Dart. Some of you remember Dodge Darts. It, it was a Dodge Dart, and uh, the hood was up, and it was spewing white stuff all over the, the freeway. And uh, it was really a mystery. And, until I learned more about it, I, what I learned was that there are a couple guys who went to transport a, a feather mattress on the, on the freeway. And the way that they did that, the way they secured it to their car, the top of their car was with neckties. You heard that right. Neckties. So they tied it. That was when people still wore neckties. So, so they, they tied a bunch of these neckties end to end, and then the passenger grabbed one end and the uh, driver grabbed the other end. And, and they, uh, they held this mattress on top of their car and took off down the freeway. Well, somewhere between 50 and 60 miles an hour, that mattress achieved liftoff <laughs> and, and, and uh, began flying down the freeway. And, and this Dodge Dart ran over it. And, and uh, unfortunately, it, it, it uh, somehow got wedged up between the fan and the radiator. And this fan just began chewing up this feather mattress and spewing this snowstorm of feathers all over the the freeway. Well, uh, obviously those two guys, uh, we never did really determine whether the, uh, whether the neckties broke or, or, or one of, whether one of those uh, weak links that were holding them uh, let go of the, their end. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't know. But uh, obviously they failed to understand the physics of transporting a mattress down the highway on top of your car at 50 to 60 miles an hour. They didn't know the the forces that would be at work there. 
They didn't know what they didn't know. And the same thing is true of a certain Syrian king that we're going to read about this morning. He didn't know what he didn't know. He failed to understand the forces that were at work when he tried to confront one of God's prophets, Elisha. Well, let's, let's, let's read about it. In uh, 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23. If you're going to read about it in the Pew Bible, um, it's page 277. I'm going to be reading to you out of uh, the English Standard Version. That's what's going to be on the screen. The New American Standard is in the, is in the pew. It's just a little bit different, but not much. It's a great story. Let's read about it. Starting at verse 8, 2 Kings 6. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him. So he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and, and they surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, Behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as, of course, this was enemy territory. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. <clears throat> so there are two realities we see, <clears throat> excuse me, two realities we see in this passage. <clears throat> First of all, a certain Syrian king failed to understand the, the forces at work in his encounter with Elisha <clears throat> because one of those realities was operating in the physical world <clears throat> that can be seen with the human eye 
Uh, the other was operating in the spiritual world, visible only to those who were enabled by God to see that. <clears throat> Notice also that, that Elisha's prayer uh, released the power of God in the spiritual world uh, to overcome obstacles that were in the physical world. <clears throat> God sent horses and, and chariots of fire to protect Elisha from the Syrian army, and, and those were the battle tanks of the day. You know, they were the most fearsome weapon of war that existed at that time. And, uh, and I suspect that that's why God sent those, because they would have meaning uh, to, to anyone who saw them. <clears throat> I don't know what it would be if God did the same thing in our day. What would it be, an M1 Abrams tank, uh, for example, a fearsome weapon of war? Or would it be uh, special ops soldiers all kitted up in their, in their combat gear? I, I don't know. But in this case, it was fiery horses and and chariots. And, and although uh, not mentioned here specifically, uh, many scholars believe that there were, were angels that were leading those fiery horses and chariots. Uh, angels are mentioned about 273 times in, in the Bible. And they're mentioned as uh, messengers or, or servants that are sent to protect God's people or, or to carry out judgment. Uh, they're, they're spirit beings, as Scripture describes them, spirit beings who can obviously appear in, in various physical forms, and including human form. And their role is, is further described in, uh, in Hebrews 1.14. The writer of Hebrews tells us, are they not ministering spirits? So they're spirit beings. Are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who is that? Who is that? Us, yeah. Believers, I exactly. Uh, they're sent out to to minister to us and to serve us and to protect us. So angels, angels operate all around us on a, on a daily basis, just as they did with Elisha, to protect and to serve us at God's direction. So there's a plane of existence that we can't see with the, the human eye, but uh, God and his angels are active in that plane of existence. In fact, the, the writer of Hebrews also tells us, he, he reminds the, the readers of the day he says, don't forget to show hospitality, in verse, uh, Hebrews 13, 2, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. Some have entertained angels un unaware. That's all, that passage has always intrigued me. Well, God responded to Elisha's prayer. He, he allowed his servant, uh, allowed Elisha's servant to see the, the spiritual world in order to calm his fears. Elisha said to him, those who are with us are, are greater than those who are with them. And then again, Elisha's prayer, when the Syrian army approached, God responded to Elisha's prayer. He blinded them to protect his people. And, and also, um, you don't think of it at first, but also to, to mercifully save the Syrian army from complete annihilation. Uh, God, God blinded them. Most of the Bible scholars and commentators that, uh, on this passage uh, indicate that they don't think it was a complete physical blindness because obviously they... This, this army had to drive horses and chariots 10 miles to get to Samaria. Uh, so they couldn't have been completely blind or that would have been impossible. But, but more like a, a disorientation or a confusion that put them under the direction of Elisha. Uh, those of you that are old enough to remember the Star Wars uh, series, remember Jedi mind tricks. And, and it's, it, it almost seems like that, that uh, it's a misdirection uh, that uh, was given to the, the Syrian army that uh, saved his people and ultimately caused the Syrians to withdraw and, and not to attack Israel anymore. 
Well, what can, what can we learn from Elisha uh, and this story for, for living in our world? First of all, that, uh, that we're soldiers in the middle of a cosmic conflict. Mark talked about this. Uh, a cosmic conflict, a spiritual war between God and, and Satan that's still ongoing. And the prize is, is the control of the hearts and minds of every man and woman on this planet. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're battling against spiritual forces that we can't see. Uh, Lesson number two that I think we can see in, in this passage is that the natural man apart from Christ has been blinded by Satan. And, and is oblivious to both the nature of the conflict and, and the spiritual forces that are operating around him or her and, and against them. Again, we see in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that, but a natural man does not accept the, spirit, the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or, or discerned. Many people in our world do not understand, do not have the capability to understand spiritual truth. And that's because the natural man is conditioned to accept knowledge only through his five senses. And our culture conditions us to that as well. You have to be able to see it, hear it, smell it, touch it, taste it in order to be able to know that it's true. And we don't consider anything else on a natural level. And that's why some people are so difficult to talk to about the gospel. It's more than just persuading them intellectually. There, there is a spiritual blindness that is a barrier to their understanding. An example is uh, Elisha's servant. He was blind to the spiritual realm. He couldn't see it until Elisha prayed for God to open his eyes to see the truth. Same with the, the, spiritual, same with the Syrian soldiers. And, and that's why, folks, that, that prayer is such an important prerequisite to, to evangelism. Uh, we, we have to pray for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of the people that we're interacting with. And that's why also that, that leading someone to faith in Christ is more often a journey of many small steps, many small conversations, many small seeds planted rather than a one-time event. Well, Satan has a number of strategies to deceive us, and I want to touch on three this morning that he's using in our modern-day world. The first is, is what's been called a new spirituality and, and it, uh, the Pew Research Center, uh, who, who uh, studies trends in uh, religion in, Amer- in America, recently reported that uh, about 27% of U.S. adults now consider themselves to be spiritual but not religious. Uh, you've heard them say, um, well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm, I'm just not religious. George Barna, the pollster, said that uh, this new spirituality includes uh, some of these tenets of belief. Uh, all people pray to the same God. The belief that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no, no matter what name they, they use for him. Uh, the, the belief that meaning and purpose come from being one with all that is. I've heard people say, I, I'm one with the universe. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds cool, you know. Uh, it, well, I, I was going to say it sounds like something you'd say after you're smoking dope, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm one with the universe. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, how's that working for you? An- another tenet 
of uh, the new spirituality is if you do good, you'll receive good. If you do bad, you'll receive bad. Isn't that the old karma recycled? You see, there's nothing new really, is there? I recently had a conversation with a young man uh, who was in this mode. He was uh, spiritual, but he had had some bad experiences with, uh, with church people. And so uh, he was unsure whether there even was a God. He wasn't willing to uh, admit that there was a God. But if there was, uh, he thought he could explain his position to God when the time came. Uh, his, his view was that he was basically a good person, and if God graded on the curve, then uh, he'd probably be okay because he was a, a spiritual person. We had a little conversation about absolute truth and, and reality. Uh, whether, whether because he believed something, did that make it true? And, and I said, what if, what if uh, for a moment, if indeed there is a God, uh, and this God created us, would it be reasonable to think that he would require something of us. If so, there's a very real danger, my friend, uh, that you could go through your whole life with your ladder up against the wrong wall, depending on your own efforts instead of the, the rescue plan that God has put in place through Jesus Christ. You see, many people think that they can be their own savior. You run into that again and again, don't you, uh, in this world? Uh, folks who think they, they can be their own savior through their own efforts. It's timeless. But Jesus said this. This is God's truth. This is what Jesus said about it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's only one way from God's perspective. A second deception that uh, Satan, uh, Satan uh, is pushing in our world is uh, the secularism. That is a worldview that holds that objective truth does exist, uh, but that it can only be determined and verified through the, the scientific method. And uh, some of the basic tenets in, include a, a rejection of the supernatural, including God as creator and sustainer of the universe. The Bible's a collection of fables. They would say about the story that we just read, that didn't really happen. That was a, that's a fable, like Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, the, the whole point of uh, Dar Darwinism is a, is a secularist perspective an atheist perspective. And um, the whole point is to remove God from his role in creation. If you remove him as creator, then, then you really don't have to pay attention to him in any other area of your life, right? Uh, another tenet is that uh, a belief has to be proven by science in order to know that it's true. And that leaves no room for the God who created science and put the laws that govern the universe in place, the God that transcends science. Dr. Francis Collins is a name that you may be familiar with. He was the uh, renowned, the world-renowned geneticist and physician who led the Human Genome Project a few years ago that mapped the structure of human DNA for the first time in history. Collins describes himself at one point in his life as an obnoxious atheist. He said he thought science was God. And then he came to faith in Jesus Christ and he realized that science is a tool that God gave us uh, to, uh, to understand and, and to explore the universe. And he wrote a book about his own journey to faith and, and his, uh, his exploration of, of the intricacies, the infinite in intricacies of DNA. And he called it the language of God. DNA, the language of God. Another tenet of uh, secularism is that a person's life has value only if society sees it as valuable, and, and otherwise they're, they're disposable. 
And uh, if you think about it, every, every secularist, atheist uh, culture that we've seen in, in recent years, the, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, China, Cambodia, uh, all of them had very, they killed millions of their own people. Very little uh, value um, for life. Life had very little value from their perspective. But, but what uh, God says is that, uh, and, and they also say that, that meaning and purpose in life come from working hard and making the most out of life. It almost sounds like uh, you only go around once, grab all the gusto you can, you know. It rapidly translates into materialism, piling up stuff. But Jesus spoke to meaning and purpose. He said, this is our meaning and purpose. He said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and, and all these things will be added to you. A third deception is, uh, is postmodernism. Perhaps you've you heard of that. Perhaps you're familiar with it. In contrast to secularism, postmodernism asserts that there really is no, thing, no such thing as, as absolute objective truth. The best we can determine is what's true for us. And, and what's true for you may be different than what's true for me. Some of those beliefs include no one can know for certain what meaning and purpose there is to life. In other words... Life is meaningless. It is what it is. Uh, what's morally right or wrong depends on, on what an individual believes is right or wrong for them. And there's no absolute truth. Truth is, is what the individual believes it, it is in that moment, at that time for him or her. I had a discussion in an MSU sociology class a couple years ago that, that began with uh, the structure of the church that they wanted to know about as an organizational organizational sociology class. And, uh, and it, it, it quickly moved to the moral basis for our criminal laws. And, and I, I made the point that many of our criminal laws have a basis in moral law. And, and um, they found that arbitrary. And, and I, I asked the question as to whether they thought that there was, in view of that, did they think that there was absolute truth? There was everything relative? Was everything uh, true or not, depending on how you felt about it at the moment. And, and there was a consensus there that it was relative. Uh, what was right and wrong, in other words, uh, really depended on what you thought about it, what ind individuals thought about it at the time. I then asked them a, a question. Um, I, I said, well, in view of that, is, uh, is rape always wrong? Long silence in the classroom. Finally, couple guys in back took the bait. And, and they, uh, there, was a, there was a long silence. Finally, a couple guys in back, may, uh, they began to speculate, turn around in their minds, and, and they finally said, well, it, you, you know what, it, it might be okay, and then I'll never forget the way they phrased that. If the guys in that country decided it was, then, then it might be okay. And uh, I, I said, you mean like the Taliban? Here's a modern-day example. And, and I, I could see a lot of the girls in the class uh, mentally adding these guys to their do-not-date list, you know. <laughs> Ultimately, a consensus began to swing back to the position that perhaps there were some moral absolutes. There are some things that are always right and, and always wrong. Thus, the need for the kinds of moral standards we find in Scripture. Uh, a Pew Research study this month uh, noted that 
over half of Americans now believe that it's not necessary to believe in God in order to be a moral person. In other words, we can set our own individual standards as to what is moral behavior. Um, I'll put on my best uh, Dr. Phil face and say, how's that working for us? Does that mean that Harvey Weinstein's version of morality is as valid as yours and mine as long as he believes it sincerely? I'm reminded of the description of life in Israel's history where they'd lost all moral direction. And Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds like a very dangerous place to live. I think, folks, that the most dangerous deception of our time is, that, uh, is thinking that if we believe something sincerely enough, that makes it true that makes it a reality, and that we can, we can make up our own rules. We can write our own ending to the story, much like a, a mystery that has multiple endings, and you can just choose one. Uh, we, we, um, in our culture, we're encouraged to think that that's the, the way that life works, and, and, um, and then we can be our own God. I mean, if we can choose our own right and wrong, we can choose our own objective truth, or, or our own... Uh, relative truth, then, uh, then we can be our own God. A private joke that Mark and I share is, uh, has to do with uh, summer sausage. You know, he and I, uh, we, we put on the men's Bible study sometimes in, in the uh, fall usually. Last year we were, uh, the evening session, I, I usually prepare some refreshments for the guys, so I was cutting up uh, summer sausage. And uh, he came by and grabbed a piece. He said, wow, this is really good. Is this, is this venison sausage? And I said, Mark, it can be if you believe hard enough. <laughs> you, see, you see my point? Whatever he believes about it is not going to change the fact that it came from Myers. It's summer sausage. Yeah, it's standard stuff. What we believe doesn't change reality. Objective reality is, is what it is. And, and God is, is the one who defines reality. Uh, Jesus said that God is the one who defines what is truth. He says in, uh, in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them. In other words, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is what tells us what is right and wrong and, and makes us holy. You see, God defines truth and reality uh, about creation, about the value of life, about marriage, about the way to live life, about everything else in life. God is the one who defines truth. And all three of these worldviews that I've just described to you are, are just ways to deny God his rightful place as Lord of our lives and the one who can define reality for us and, and also how to live. Reality and truth are, are what God says in his word. Everything else is a delusion from Satan. Lesson three, God's given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand spiritual truth. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. You see, the Holy Spirit communicates with our spirit, spirit to spirit, in a way that allows us to receive and comprehend the word of God and to carry out God's direction, to apply it to our lives. It, it was the Holy Spirit that communicated with Elisha and told him what to do next. And, and that's why sometimes you know, you know 
spiritual truths that you did not learn through your five senses. Um, in, in 1 John, now we're told that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. Why you sometimes have a flash of insight or you're prompted to pray for someone that you hadn't thought about before. It's what makes the Word of God come alive to us. It's the Holy Spirit within each Christian. The Holy Spirit also teaches us how to pray in, in a way that accomplishes God's purposes. And uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He prays for us when we can't quite get it out. Lesson number four, just as it was for Elisha, the, the prayer of faith is a weapon that God's given us to, re, to remove spiritual blindness in ourselves and other people, to stop Satan's evil schemes, to protect other Christians, and to change the course of human events in, in the natural world. Um, we're told in, uh, in 2 Corinthians again by the Apostle Paul, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. They're not guns and knives. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension or false idea that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And, and strongholds and arguments and pretensions are those spiritual barriers that Satan puts in place in, in uh, people's minds that keep them from God's truth, that keep them from understanding um, what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do. And, and, so our, uh, and, and we can pray to God to remove those barriers, to remove those strongholds and those arguments and pretensions, to change people's thinking. He's the only one who can do that. Our spiritual weapons are our prayer, which releases God's power, and, and God's word, which is living and active in people's minds and hearts and lives, and the Holy Spirit, who opens people's hearts and draws people to God. In Ephesians 6, Paul explains what our, what our prayer strategy ought to look like. He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, Words may be given me so that I'll fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He was in prison at the time. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. That's a good prayer for each other. That's a good prayer for ourselves, that God would enable us uh, each to do that in, in our prayer life. Prayer is the means that God has given us to enter the spiritual world and leverage spiritual power to affect individual human events in the natural world. God changes hearts and minds and events and the, the whole trajectories of uh, human lives. One of my favorite authors on prayer is uh, Jennifer Kennedy Dean in the book Live a Praying Life. She says this, your prayers will never do anything except release God's power for God's purposes. On the other hand, your prayers will always release God's power for God's purposes. If you're interested in um, getting together with a group of people who pray regularly, uh, come in on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock. There's a prayer. Chris Shimke leads a little prayer group here in the cafe. And um, we'll pray about the, uh, the church, pray about what's ever on your heart. Uh, it's just a great time to, to pray with other uh, people of prayer at New Hope. Prayer means... Uh, 
Um, lesson five, the church is the body of Christ, uh, the physical representation of Christ here on this earth. The, the church is a force that God has commanded to take back um, the world, to engage with the enemy and, and to advance his kingdom. Jesus himself established the church. Sometimes you wonder, where did the church come from? Whose idea was it? Well, it was Jesus Christ's idea. He said this. He was talking to his apostle Peter. He said, I also say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock, that is Peter, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus established the church. Why did he do that? What purpose does he have for the church? Well, here it is. Ephesians 3. Uh, his, that is God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the many-faceted wisdom of God, should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the way that God intends to reveal his plans uh, to both the evil and the, and the good rulers and authorities, powerful spiritual beings in the heavenly realms is, is through the church. God intends uh, to use his church to take back the world from the control of Satan by transforming individual hearts and minds, our families, our churches, our schools, our communities, our governments, and ultimately our nation and, and the world. How can we do that? What, what are some practical steps that we can take in that direction? Well, first of all, uh, we can begin to pray. Many of you are people of prayer already, uh, but we can pray that God will open the eyes of those around us to see spiritual truth. Jesus said this uh, about the way that that works. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, we can't argue somebody into the kingdom, but we can pray them into the kingdom. It's the Holy Spirit's work. We can ask God to open their eyes and bring them to a, a saving knowledge of the truth. The second thing we can do is, is we can be deliberate about our friendships with people who do not yet know Christ as their Savior. I meet a lot of people who have had bad experiences with church at, at some point in their lives. And usually it revolves around some sort of condemnation that they felt. Sometimes uh, we, lead with truth, we lead with truth when we should perhaps lead with grace. Uh, truth outside the context of a relationship with someone uh, too often alienates people who are not yet ready to hear it. And, and sometimes we expect people to be sanctified before they're saved. And we're repelled by a sinful lifestyle. And so we come across as judgmental and the opportunity for a relationship is, is lost. My friends, uh, Jesus was called he was ridiculed as a friend of sinners. I think we need to be more like our master. No one ever, no one ever would suggest that Jesus compromised the gospel because he was a friend of sinners. William Barclay puts it this way, more people have been brought into the church by the kindness of real Christian love than by all the theological arguments in the world. Thirdly, we can know and speak God's word as the only authentic source of truth and, and reality. Uh, Paul tells us in uh, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. 
That is, somebody did, just didn't dream this up. God inspired the, the word of God. <clears throat> All scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for these things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is intended to equip us to speak for God in his words. I'm going to suggest, if you don't already, I know many of you are, are students of the word of God. If you don't already, let me suggest that you spend regular time on a systemat- in a systematic way in, in the word of God every, every day. And there are a couple ways to do that. Um, if you've been around me long, you know that once a year at least, I put this in your bulletin. I like to think of these bulletins as gift bags. <laughs> Everybody walks away with something, you know? So, so here's, here's a reading plan. Here's a Bible reading plan in here. If you like checking off boxes as you go, there are boxes on here. You can read through the New Testament in a year. You can read through the Old and New Testament in a year. If you're new to it, start with the New Testament. You read five days a week. You check off the boxes. God will use the Word of God into, in, in your life to shape you into, the, into an instrument that He can use in the lives of the people around you. Uh, another something that between services, Scott Harding suggested to me uh, a mobile app. It's called Read Scripture. Read Scripture. Uh, a mobile app on your phone, and it, uh, it allows you to read Scripture on your phone and walk through the, the Bible in a systematic way. I think there's some videos and some explanation that's a part of that as well. But Read Scripture is the, is the name of the app. It's another way to do it. Um, here's an example of what that can do for you. I find that uh, reading the Word of God regularly allows those truths to come out in my life in a way that can, can benefit myself and, and other people that God uses. Here's an example of one passage that will do that. Uh, Jesus' explanation of who he is and what he came to do in his own words. You know, sometimes you'll have a conversation around the water cooler or over lunch with people. They'll say, well, does anybody really know that Jesus existed? I mean, who was he anyway? Was he just a great teacher? You know, was he a maniac? Uh, what... what who was he anyway? Well, you might say, you know, if you really want to know who Jesus Christ was, uh, I can, I can uh, tell you what he said about himself in four verses. John three sixteen through 19, here it is. It's, a con- it's the most concise explanation of the gospel. You say, the gospel is so complicated, I don't have any confidence in my ability to share it. Well, you do now, you do now. Here are four verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Anybody can read four verses to a friend over lunch. That you just shared the gospel with somebody. God will use it to change their lives. That's an example of what you can get from God's word, and, and God will use that in your life. Fourth, we can be prepared to, to give an answer by learning to defend God's truth as the only reality. Um, somebody said to me recently, you know, I, I just don't know what to say sometimes when people say, well, we really don't know if there is a God. Well, science has really disproved crea- uh, creation uh, God is creator, or we don't know whether Jesus was really uh, resurrected or, or not. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I like making a defense. The King James Version says uh, to give an answer. Give an answer is, sounds like it's quicker. It could be flip. But uh, uh, the uh, ESV and the NASB versions <clears throat> translated as make a defense. I like that because it implies preparing a defense for what we believe. Um, I included in your packet this morning uh, our statement of faith here at New Hope. Do you, do you know what you believe? Our statement of faith is a description of, it's the first part of our constitution for the church. It's a description of nine truths, nine things which we think are absolute truth from God's word uh, about um, the Bible, uh, about how the world, uh, who God was, who we are, how the world came into existence, who Jesus Christ was, what he came to do, who is the Holy Spirit, what is the purpose of the church. Those nine things are, are all here, and there's, there's scripture there to back them up. We think these things are absolute truth from God's perspective. And, and this is what we, this is our stake we drive in the ground. These things are non-negotiable here at, uh, at New Hope. We think this is the central part of, of uh, what we believe. So if somebody says, what does your church believe? Here you go. That's what our church believes. This is, uh, this is on our website. This is the number, this receives the most hits of anything else on our website, is uh, our, our statement of faith. People want to know. Uh, what, what you believe. Spend a little time with that. Uh, secondly, if you want to uh, be prepared to make a defense, I'd recommend this. I put it in your reading list uh, in the study notes. God's Not Dead uh, by Rice Brooks. Uh, it is, um, if you're serious about knowing what to say when somebody raises one of these baloney arguments about, uh, <clears throat> well, science has disproved uh, the, the uh, God is creator or Jesus never really rose from the dead, or, or we don't even know if there is a God. In any of those baloney kinds of arguments they just throw out there, uh, I'm going to encourage you to read this book. It will give you great confidence in responding to those kinds of issues that people just throw out there. Uh, and you will feel when you're finished, um, uh, he, uh, he explains um, uh, evidence for God as creator of the universe. He explains evidence for, for uh, Christ's resurrection. Um, all, the, all the great cosmic questions that come out over lunch, uh, a, a wonderful explanation is included in here. It's easy to read, and I had hoped to have a supply of these books in back, but uh, for some reason, two-day delivery morphed into six-day delivery. So uh, they're going to be here tomorrow. If you want to stop by uh, during the week, you can pick one up for 10 bucks, or I'll have them on a table in the back next week. But I'd encourage you, it will equip you and give you great confidence uh, to defend your faith. Let me give you one example uh, from that book of the kinds of things that you'll, you'll learn. Very interesting. Um, that statement of faith, by the way, describes a worldview. That is our, our view of the way that the world works. Uh, the example from God's Not Dead, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson were two physicists at Bell Telephone Labs in New Jersey in 1965. They used a large horn antenna they directed it out into outer space. And, and they were trying to discover background, background radiation noise in space and, and did, in fact, discover that. And it confirmed Edwin Hubble's, perhaps you remember his name, they named a telescope after him. They, it confirmed Hubble's uh, discovery back in 1929 of the so-called so Big Bang. That, that was a term of ridicule that was directed at this discovery, actually, that 
that the, the earth had a sudden explosive beginning. And uh, they were awarded, Penzias and Wilson were awarded a Nobel Prize in physics in 1978 for their discovery. This is, this is what uh, Penzias said about it. He said, the best data we have concerning the origin of the universe are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. If theism and the Judeo-Christian view are true, then we have reason to expect evidence of a finite universe. That is a, a universe that had a beginning. That's a big deal. Therefore, we have a reason to think that theism and the Judeo-Christian view of creation may be true. That's a scientist talking, you see. Well, God is the one who ultimately defines reality, and here's what he has to say about the origin of the universe. He said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, as well they should, because he made them. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Whether it has to do with the origin of the universe or how we can come into right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, God is the one who defines reality and his word is truth. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you that you've defined truth for us. We thank you that we can rely on your word and that what you say is true for now and, and for eternity, for all time. Lord, we, we pray that you'll impress on us the truth of your word, that, uh, that you'll shape and mold us through your word and through your Holy Spirit into those kinds of instruments that you can use to take back control of this world from, from uh, Satan and the delusions that he would foist on, on our culture. And we pray that you'd use us to advance your kingdom and, and to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in the, the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for your time today, folks. It's been great being with you.